this is the ground floor. What's up, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of The Ground Floor. My name is Jesse Finver, and along with me today, we have an incredibly, an amazing guest, an incredibly cool guest, Len Berman, a legendary sportscaster in the New York area, and honestly, throughout the country. Uh, Len, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I see you're wearing your Mets shirt, so, uh, you know, yes, sir. you're in first place as we speak, so <laughs> you don't screw it up. You know what? We we lost uh, we lost another pitcher yesterday and VR. So you know, I mean, of, of course we get McNeil back, and then we just lose like three more guys. Just, right. So that's that, that's the Mets. You know. Yeah. <laughs> how, how long have you been covering the Mets? I mean, I've been covering the Mets since the beginning. So I, I watched them play at the Polo Grounds. So you know, yeah. this is this is nothing new. Yeah. Exactly. I've been a Mets fan for twenty years. You know. So okay. this is. Yeah, you know, the first time I ever yeah, so, first time sports ever made me cry. Well, you're you're nowhere close. You're nowhere close to uh well, you're nowhere close to getting a World Series. I mean, it's uh well, you we know, came it's close. I mean, you, you know, you probably weren't alive. No, I was not alive. Yeah, I was well, born in 95. Close we, is not enough. No, you're 100% right. Close is not enough. Uh 2015 was oh, did I was not a Mets fan yet in 2000. I was like 5, so I don't really count that. Um, but 2015 okay. came close. Um, all right, but well, this is not about the Mets. This is about you. I want to talk to you about your career. And okay. you, you, you kind of started it off <clears throat> saying you, you grew up watching the Mets at the polo grounds. Growing up in the 50s, what was it about broadcasting in general, sports? What was it that piqued your interest? Who were you watching and listening to that made you think as a kid, I want to do that? Uh, I never thought I could do this. So that I really, when I was watching – the sportscasters at the time or listening to them, I never thought, well, that's something I'm going to do. But I was a, uh, before the Mets came into existence, I was a Yankees fan. I was a Mickey Mantle fan. And, you know, one of my heroes was Mel Allen, who I later got to meet. He was the longtime voice of the Yankees. But I never thought that, gee, you know, I want to be Mel Allen or, or announce Yankee games. I never really thought, it, it, this sounds really strange. I never thought much about it. Uh, I like sports. I like the which I thought were really cool because uh, you got two halftimes. So you got two ice creams, you know, in, in basketball, <laughs> you just got one halftime. So uh, I, I liked the hockey at the garden. Old garden. Um, uh, I went to college at Syracuse. And for mm -hmm. some reason, oh, here, the backstory is I had an English teacher. I went to Stuyvesant High School in the city. I had an English teacher who told me I had a good voice, which just blew me away because I never thought of anything. I never thought of my voice. I never just gave it any thought. I just right. talked. And he said, I should become an actor. And I said, uh, and I knew at the time, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be an actor. I, <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I don't think I had any skills or any, I know, I had no interest in acting. But he told me I had a good voice, so uh, I wandered into the campus radio station. Uh, my freshman year. I, in fact, I knocked on the door. It wasn't even open. So I went back a few days later and they said, uh, what are you interested in doing? And I said, well, I, you know, I thought maybe I'd, I'd try to be a disc jockey. And they said, uh, this is a true story. They said, uh, you know, everyone wants to be, everyone wants to do that. Uh, you know, we, we have an opening on a Saturday night uh, to read the sports scores. 
And I said, uh, I swear to God, I said, I can do that. You know, I thought, I really thought you had to be some kind of expert uh, in order to read sports scores. In fact, uh, when I was growing up, the people who did the sports news on the local TV stations, what I eventually wound up doing on Channel 4, but the people who did them on the New York TV stations when I was growing up were all former football giants. Uh, they were uh, Frank Gifford and Pat Summerall and right. Kyle Rote. These are the guys who were doing the sports news on the local town. So I figured, well, do us to be a sportscaster, you had to be a former player, or you had to be an expert. Which is, you know, years later in retrospect, I mean, uh, any idiot can go on the air. You know, just look <laughs> at us. So, I mean, I, you don't have to be an expert, but right. I didn't. Clearly, I didn't have a date on a Saturday night. And I said, yeah, I'll read the scores, and that's what really led me into it. I started doing the college basketball games at Syracuse. Um, in fact, my freshman year, the very first college basketball game I announced, Jim Beheim played in the game. Really? Which is... Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's, he's still there coaching. Last and now his kid, world. now he's coaching his son, right? Yeah, now he's coaching his son. And there was a, a superstar at the time named Dave Bing, who was the big star of the Syracuse oh, yeah. basketball team at the time. But Beheim was a terrific player. I mean, he doesn't never looked like an athlete. You know, people have a, a predisposed notion of what an athlete should look like. Beheim looked like a gangly, well, if you're familiar with Phil Jackson as a player, I mean, just, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't smooth, but he was a very good, very good basketball player. Beheim. And uh, that's how it really all began uh, at Syracuse University. So at Syracuse, there was no Citrus TV. Well, you graduated in 60, is 70 or 60? What, what year 68, was it? 68, undergraduate, and I stayed around. Because Citrus yeah. TV started in 1970. And I hung around and got a master's degree. Oh, so were What's you that? there? I'm saying Citrus, Citrus TV wasn't started until 1970. So, because that, that's the student-run right. TV station, right? So, were you there long enough for that yeah. start of that? or No. I don't remember. I don't remember Citrus TV at all. I do remember uh, just working at WAER, the radio station. Yeah. And then, uh, for a class project... I remember announcing a high school football game at Syracuse uh, for a friend of mine, but it was a class mm -hmm. project. But that's what we—that's the only—and and we did a uh, gymnastics meet. But those were just those were class projects. They weren't on on the air. Oh, I think they were eventually televised on the educational station, which was at, at the time Channel Twenty Four in Syracuse. But uh, no, I don't remember Citrus TV. So was your first TV broadcasting opportunity? You being on the air, the microphone, the cameraman, everything in Dayton. Was that where your first, or was? Like, how did you go about getting that job with no, like, yeah. tape that you were able to send in, like, a view on camera? Like, how did that work? All right. I did do um, – I did work part-time at the ABC affiliate in Syracuse, but I wasn't an anchorman. I remember uh, doing film interviews. In fact, one of the interviews I remember doing was with the uh, governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller. I don't, I don't have any memory of that interview, but just remember he was a nice guy to do an interview with me. Um, what happened was – my roommate told me that there was a, a, a sign that was posted looking for an intern for the summer uh, to, to work at a broadcast operation at the time was called AFCO Broadcasting. And the ad said they had stations in Washington and San Francisco. And I said, well, that would be really cool. So I applied uh, for this, uh, it was a news internship. And I applied for it. And I remember we sat in a room and we had to um, write a make-believe script. We had to like deliver a make-believe stand-up on camera. 
And for some reason, I won this internship. And they said, well, you're not quite going to Washington or San Francisco. The station that we linked up for this internship is Dayton, Ohio. I said, okay. So <laughs> I wound up spending the summer in Dayton, Ohio, where they actually paid me 100 bucks a week, which I thought was great. And the local TV talk show, just at that TV station, Dayton, Ohio, was something called The Phil Donahue Show. Now, Phil eventually became a big superstar nationally syndicated, but he started out at the local station, Dayton, Ohio. So when I was looking for a job, I sent out uh, resumes to every single one of the top 50 television markets in the country, three stations. I mean, this was this predates uh, cable. So mm -hmm. I said the ABC, the NBC, the CBS, and I sent out all these resumes. And I only heard, believe it or not, I heard back from three stations. A station in New Orleans wanted to see a tape, which I sent. I guess I had some kind of a tape I used. Um, and I never heard from him again. Channel 2 in New York called me in for an interview. Uh, this is the craziest thing. And I wound up working there later on. They called me for an interview and they said, all right, you know, go get a job in Minneapolis and then come back. And I said, well, I'd love a job in Minneapolis. They didn't answer my uh, letters. The only station that brought me back was Dayton, Ohio, that, where I had this internship. So they hired me to be a, a news reporter slash anchorman uh, right out of college in Dayton, Ohio. And that's how I started. It wasn't in sports. You know, it was just, they put me on the air. And I was there for three and a half years. I was there for two weeks and I started sending out resumes. But that's a whole other story. Right, right, right. So, all right, you go Dayton, then you go to Boston uh, as a sport. So, what was your first opportunity to do sports? Okay, what happened was there was one uh, or two occasions where the sports director couldn't make it for the uh, for Dayton, Ohio, and they let me do the sports casts, and uh, I had fun doing it. In fact, the Cincinnati was only forty five minutes away, so I remember going down and interviewing some of the reds on the big red machine, people like Joe Morgan and, and Pete Rose, and Johnny Bench. And I'd drive it back to Dayton, Ohio and play it on a newscast. Um, and I even covered the World Series uh, on the field in Cincinnati. The 1972 World Series was the Reds against the A's. And I still have a picture of myself interviewing Sparky Anderson, the manager of the Reds, after game six of the World Series. Wow. And then something like that wouldn't happen today because there was 8,000 people from and ESPN and every and you know your stations and everybody's on the field so I mean but I but that's the way it was back then and uh I would send out resumes and tapes and it was an opening for a weekend sportscaster in Cincinnati which was right down the road I didn't get it and I was crushed just Christ I said, well I'm never getting out of Dayton so they would blindly send uh, there was a, a broadcasting mag well it was called broadcast magazine I don't know if it still exists and they'd have blind ads that you could answer so I answered an ad for a sportscaster and they brought, it was Boston, Massachusetts. And they, it was a weeknight sportscasting job. The sportscaster at the station was re, was moving on. I don't know if you remember the name, Dick Stockton. Uh, Dick's a famous sportscaster from Syracuse, of course. Mm -hmm. But he was the sportscaster in Boston and he was leaving and it had an opening. And they brought me in for an audition. And then they said, it comes down to two guys, you and this other guy from Peoria. And um, we're bringing you back for a second audition. So I go, to the date, I go to Boston for the second audition from Dayton. They called me up and said, ah, you didn't get the job. We're giving it to the guy from Peoria. And two weeks later, they called me up and said, well, what happened was uh, the guy's wife uh, was pregnant, didn't want to leave Peoria, so you got the job. <laughs> I mean, that's how, you know, how crazy the business. So I got the job in Boston. I was doing the nightly 
uh, sports cast at 6 and 11 on the NBC affiliate, WBZ. I also wound up doing uh, uh, Boston Celtics games on Channel 4 in Boston with Bob, Bob Cousy, who was my uh, color man, the great uh, Hall of Famer. I was going to get And then I wound that, up yeah. doing some Patriots preseason games as well. So I did all these things in Boston, which was great for five years. What was Bob Cousy like? The best. He's still with us. He's 90. He uh, was honored by uh, Trump with the Medal of Freedom. I remember and, that, um, yeah. Uh, he was just remarkable. Uh, Bob Cousy was just a remarkable individual uh, on and off the air, just a class, class act. The all-time, all-time greats. You want to guess what his highest salary ever, regular season salary was uh, oh, like, with the Boston Celtics? Probably like 30 grand. You're right on. Yeah. You did your homework. 35 grand. <laughs> yeah. 35 grand. And that's why when it came to the playoffs, he would he would kill his own mother to win a playoff game because they got to sit, you know, if they want 8,000 for the postseason, I mean, I, you know, that's a significant portion of their salary. And yeah. if another guy on a team wasn't pulling his weight, they would pull him aside and say, listen, you know, you're, you're playing with our livelihood here. And they would, and they would kill in the off and then postseason. And, you know, they won every year, but uh, I just, Kuzi was remarkable. Great, great. One of the greatest experiences of my life. Now I, I got to broadcast with another uh, former Celtic, Tommy Heinsohn. Yes. Uh, because believe it or not, in 1979, um, HBO, this is the year before ESPN came around, mm-hmm. HBO decided to do a college basketball game of the week on HBO. And I broadcast those games with Tommy Heinsohn. Really? And some of the players who were finishing up their college careers that we broadcast that year, you may have heard of. The first game was with Magic Johnson mm-hmm. at Michigan State. And then we went to Terre Haute one week and did the basketball game with a guy named Larry Bird. So we had a remarkable season <laughs> of games. And uh, that was working with Tommy Heinsohn. Another great guy, a great Tommy Heinsohn story. Um, and, and Kuzi was like this too, which is just remarkable. And a great piece of advice I'll pass on to you. Uh, we're in a bar in Terre Haute after, after uh, uh, let's see, uh, Indiana State played Tulsa, I believe. And Larry Bird, and you know, was remarkable. What a great passer! I mean, you know, we're in a bar, and some guy half drunk comes up to to Heinz and says, "Hey, Tommy, you know what you think of Bird?" And Tommy stood there and gave him a ten-minute answer, as if he were speaking to a reporter from the New York Times. That always that always uh, stayed with me, and uh, how um, uh, Tommy treated people. And uh, Tommy's no longer with us now. He's long run as uh, after he was Celtics coach, he became Celtics mm-hmm. announcer. Um, uh, he was great like that, and Kuzu was always great like that with the fans as well. So uh, I my just, favorite thing something, about something to pass on. Yeah, my favorite thing about Tommy Heidison was I, I listen. I'd watch a lot of the Celtics games that he called, and just the passion that he would talk yeah. about the game with. It was just so evident that he loved basketball so much. So it's very cool that you got the you got to work with him directly. No, I, I had some uh, I had some great experiences. I worked with some great people. I really did. So was that one of your first like I made it moments or like was, was it with Koozie what was your big like moment where you're like was it the World Series what was that moment where you're like oh this is like I'm gonna go somewhere with this well you know I never believe it or not I never gave that any thought and everyone kept asking me well when do you want to broadcast in New York because I was from New York mm-hmm. I know this sounds really naive. I never had that as a great, I didn't say, wow, I got to go broadcast New York. Now I'll tell you how it all came about and and why it was fortuitous and all. Um, uh, When I'm on the air in Boston, a guy in the Boston Globe writes an article. I'm on the air for three months 
And I'll never forget, my wife and I wake up, my wife's pregnant with our, uh, our first child. And the headline is, uh, Channel 4's Berman off to a slow start. Mm. And my wife and I look at each other and I said, gee, I thought I was doing okay. I, didn't, I never gave it any thought, you know. And, and, and the guy, the premise of the guy's article was, you know, here's some New York guy, you know, are people in New England really going to pay any attention? And the, the moment that turned things around for me in Boston, or theoretically turned things around, was 1975. A couple of things happened. Um, number one, I created this feature called Sports Fantasy. And I invited mm -hmm. the viewers to write into me and tell me what their sports fantasy was. And uh, one of them was the sh a little kid wanted to shoot foul shots against Dave Cowens of the Celtics and another guy, a softball league in Lexington, Massachusetts, wanted to bat against Bill Lee of the Red Sox, one of their pitchers. And, and it really turned things, and, and really people kind of dug it. And then in 75, the Red Sox make the World Series. And I'm working at the NBC affiliate. And I'm on the air every night, and, and the games are on Channel 4 in Boston. And that was the classic seven-game series um, with the Cincinnati Reds, and Carlton Fisk hits that home run in game six. And uh, th those couple of events, yeah, and, and those couple of events right there kind of turned things around for me. And, uh, and then I said, you know what? This is pretty cool. I, and I had no idea what was going to take it, uh, what was going to happen. And uh, – uh, the next step wound up being, well, I, I told you about that HBO stuff, but mm -hmm. I also wound up um, um, applying for a job as a weekend sportscaster on Channel 2 in New York, that same station that invited me for an interview when I was yeah. in college. And again, uh, the job was the 6 o'clock sports news on Channel 2, and it came down to two people. We were replacing Steve Albert just at 6 o'clock because he was leaving to do Mets games, where your Mets shirt is. And uh, the 11 o'clock sports was a, a former Yankee by the name of Jim Bowden. And so there was an opening for the six o'clock sports during the week. It came down to two guys, uh, Sal Marciano and me. Mm. And once again, I lost. They gave it to Sal to do the six o'clock news, sports news. But they thought I was sort of okay. So they put me on the weekends as the weekend sportscaster, which turned out to be very fortuitous. Here's another thing that happened. Uh, Channel 2 made this amazing move, and they hired away Warner Wolf from Channel 7 at the unheard of salary at $400,000. And Warner Wolf was brought over to do the 6 and the 11 o'clock sports. But I was doing the weekend, so I stayed. I was safe. So I kept my job. So it was lucky I didn't get the job doing the 6 o'clock sports because I would have been out. And Sal wound up going to ESPN and it worked out fine for him. But yeah. uh, yeah, I, I was on the weekends, and uh, there it was. And then uh, uh, after uh, three and a half years there, NBC came calling, and I wound up working at NBC Sports. I wound up uh, actually hosting a Super Bowl and hosting a World Series. So uh, it, uh, just one goofy, lucky step after another. Yeah, so, you know, they, they like, people like to say it's better to be lucky than good, right? Well, I think you have to have a combination. I'm not going to uh, uh, give you the false modesty. I think you have to have some kind of talent yeah. somewhere for people to want to hire you. Uh, and then what happened over at NBC, I'm doing the, uh, a lot of national broadcasts. And uh, Marv Albert is doing the local sports news on Channel 4. Actually, Sal was there on the weekends, Sal Marciano. Ah. And they hired me. They hired me to fill in for Marv when he wasn't there during the week, which was quite often because he was announcing Knicks games and Rangers games mm -hmm. and all kinds of events. And I wound up filling in for Marv. And then Marv eventually just went uh, full-time on his network uh, arrangements. And uh, 
I wound up doing the sports news at 6 and 11. That was in 1986. Sound familiar? A little um, bit, yeah. <laughs> um, and not only did the um, not only did the Mets win the World Series in October when I was given the six o'clock news, I was given the eleven o'clock news in January, and the Giants won the Super Bowl. Yes, so, yes, they did. Again, timing is everything, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to NBC. Uh, and you talked a lot about different ways that you were able to differentiate yourself, especially in Boston and whatnot. And I feel like one of the ways that you were able to do that at NBC was spanning the world. Yeah. I guess what I didn't say, what I didn't say is, and you asked me about career aspirations. Right. I always consider myself a producer first and an announcer second. In other words, hmm. in the beginning, some of my favorite sports casts were if you didn't see me, you know, you just saw the the tape or the uh, pictures or whatever, you know, you didn't see me. Um, so what happened was um, Marv was doing uh, a, a, a monthly version of Goofy Highlights. He called them the Albert Achievement Awards. A Warner over on Channel 2 after Channel 7, uh, Warner Wolf was doing something called the Plays of the Month. There was a guy in Washington, George Michael, who had a thing yeah. called the Sports Machine, and he was doing some kind of Plays of the Month. I said, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to call it plays of the month. I want to do something for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, it's dynamite on a slow sports night. Uh, you know, there are nights you go on the air and not one team is playing. You say, what the hell am I going to talk about? Well, you put on some goofy highlights and that fills up the time very nicely. And the other thing was um, I, I wanted it to be a little different. So spanning the world became just an inside joke because ABC's wide world of sports would open, open their telecast by saying, spanning the globe to bring you the infinite variety of sports. So our inside joke was, well, ABC spans the globe. We're going to span something else. So we're going to span the world. And that's how we get on the title. <laughs> I hired the great voice of Don Pardo, who was also the voice of uh, Saturday Night. It's Saturday Night Live. The yeah. Don Pardo. And we had him say, tune in next time, if there is a next time. And we did it once, and we didn't know if there was going to be a next time. And the idea was it wasn't just going to be straight bloopers. It was going to try to be a little bit creative, a little bit different. And that's, that's how Spain the world. And I wound up doing it for over a quarter of a century. I wound up doing it on a Today Show once a month for, for over 25 yeah. years. And when I did it on the local sports news, Al Roker sat next to me. And he was a great laugh track. Yeah. And we came up with, <laughs> we came up with a little gag because, you know, it's just not funny uh, if a guy skis off a cliff and the ambulance shows up. So we decided we're going to, you know, we added the line and nobody got hurt, you know, because yeah. it's, it's not funny if somebody gets hurt. Of course, the true story was there were times we had no idea if anyone was hurt or not, yeah. hurt or not <laughs> because it happened over in Liechtenstein. So we would just, we would just do the journalistic thing and just lie. You know, we said, oh, oh yeah. it was just <laughs> fine. No problem. Uh, honestly, at times we had no idea. The guy could have been dead. Right. So I was, um, for my research for this interview, I was, I was watching Spanning the World and I was listening to it and my dad, I'm living at home right now, my dad walked downstairs and I played a clip and it was the rooster in the beginning, right? right? And right. my dad like turned to me and he was like, what are you watching? And I'm like, right. what do you mean? He's like, are you watching Spanning the World right now? And he came <laughs> over and we just spent like half an hour just watching old clips of Spanning the World cracking up. And it was, yeah. it was, so it was a funny story with that, with that rooster. Uh, so I'll do some name dropping. Yeah. So, um, the that was an old opening to movie tone news. And they had this rooster for, I don't have no idea why. 
So that's where that, and the music was from the old movie tone news, which are these uh, little musical features they used to play in movie theaters for people to get the news, you know, before there was television. Um, and I actually got to meet Tom Hanks huh. uh, one night. He was, uh, the, the, uh, David Letterman and, and Conan O'Brien would tape right across the hall from our uh, news set. And right. a buddy of mine who worked on uh, Conan introduced me to Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks's first word to me is, are you still doing that caca thing? And I immediately knew what he was talking about. He was talking about the rooster. Yeah. <laughs> You're on Tom Hanks. I said, yep, I'm still doing the caca thing. That's the rooster. So there you go. That's fantastic. So with the spanning the world, like, especially like in the 80s, um, it started, it was, I think it started 89, right? You guys started it? Started it locally 87. 87. And then on today's show in 1989. Yeah. So how did you guys get, I mean, this is like right before the internet, like boom and everything. So how did, right. like, where did you, like, was this viewer submissions? Like it was America's funniest home videos. I remember that show. It was show. everything. It yeah. was everything. Sometimes people would send us a, a little clip of a high school game where the announcer's going nuts. We would watch, we would get this overseas feed uh, called Reuters. And we would yeah. watch that religiously every day, just hoping that something and something goofy normally did in a soccer match over overseas or something dopey would. So yeah, we would we would really have to work very very hard. You know, uh, later towards the end of spanning, it was a piece of cake because everything's on the internet. You could just pick and choose, and it was easy yeah. to find stuff. But in the beginning, uh, it was a struggle. I, I have to admit, not everything was that funny, but. Uh, but I did have some rules as well. I know you're not going to believe this, but uh, I didn't think it was funny when a baseball uh, would get hit and some some poor baseball player got hit in the nuts. I didn't think it was funny. I mean, you're laughing, of course. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a classic. I had, I had certain highbrow rules like uh, no <laughs> nut busting, uh, and so we would uh, we would have to look for things that we would find. Listen, I don't know if you remember the classic scene: Steve Lyons runs the first base. I actually showed this on David Letterman's show one night. Steve Lyons for the White Sox runs the first base, and he dives head first, so he has all this dirt in his pants. Mm -hmm. He pulls his pants down yep. in front of the entire stadium. <laughs> uh, hello, you know, you're on TV. There are people watching. Uh, so, you know, you'd, you'd look for those right. moments. Like, I remember the one that one of, one of the ones uh, I was watching, like, there was this guy without a shirt on just, like, like chest bumping a tree over and over again. Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's what, what else do you in the, do? In the snow. It was like in the right. snow. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you had the classic uh, Jose Canseco. With He's the, playing the right field. He goes back. Ball bounces off, you know, off his head, over the fence for a home run. And, of course, the line is, you know, people said it was the first time Canseco ever used his head on the baseball field. <laughs> uh, but there was – oh, and you had the classic – we used it in the opening – when, a, when a, a minor league ball player named Rodney McRae goes running through the fence uh, at a minor league stadium yeah. in Portland, he goes running, boom. Well, what made that clip was not that he ran through the fence, but there was great audio. And he goes, boom. And this is a true story. So I, we saw this clip and we lined up an interview with him for the next night. And we had him on a satellite and we're doing the satellite interview with him. And, uh, and the satellite crapped out. And I said to myself, well, that's perfect. I mean, this guy, you know, who has a blooper and now the satellite blows up. But it was, uh, he, he was a good guy. He wound up, uh, of course, fitting enough, he wound up playing for the Mets for of sure. Of course he did, yes. <laughs> but of course he did. Right. All right, so 
you do NBC for quarter of a century. Um, and your exit, you, you eventually, you left NBC. Yes. Um, and that was a notable, it was a notable exit for a number of reasons. You were a staple there for decades. Right. It was a shock to many viewers, including myself, my family. We watched you right. guys like every night. But it wasn't just that you left during that time. There was a lot of turnover right around the time that you left. Was. As a local newsroom started to change drastically, and they went from three sports anchors to one. They made all non-talent have to reapply to their jobs. And this was happening all over the country in local newsrooms. So the local newsroom, as we knew, was basically never the same. Now, I worked in a local newsroom from 2017 to 2020 right. in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh-huh. Um, and, it, I mean, all the old heads there were telling me how different it used to be and how, sure. you know, I worked yeah. in Hattiesburg specifically, and right. that was originally, like, its own station, and then it became a satellite station. And, like, the what people who had been there for 30 years were bringing me around, like, oh, this is where the assignment desk was, and this is where everybody got their pink slips one day. No, I know. So Times changed, right? Right. So times have changed, and I'm, I'm really interested to ask you, you know, in your mind, What's the future of local news? Is this still a viable career path for young broadcasters? See, I think yes, but I think you have to distinguish yourself. And I, and I thought it was no different, believe it or not, from when I was coming up. I tried to distinguish myself. That's so I came up with sports fantasy and spanning the world. Mm-hmm. I think if somebody has a little bit of creativity to themselves and can stand out from the pack, yes, there were management people, and I dealt with them my entire career who said, well, people just watch ESPN. They don't need to watch the local news. And I made what I thought was a compelling argument. It was twofold. Number one, you have to wade through an entire hour of a sports center to get, you know, the interesting thing that you want for your local team. Mm -hmm. To me, the local sports news packaged it all in one little area. You got the Mets, the Yankees, the Knicks, the Nets, the Rangers, the Giants, the Jets. And, And also, I think if you build up a rapport with your audience, your audience wants to know what you have to say. Yeah. You know, they're interested in what the guy on channel 247 or whatever has to say because that's their guy. They want to know what he has to say about the Mets trade or about the Grom. Is he hurt or not? Is he is he one of the greatest of all? You know, why they inspect him, the first guy they looked at to see <laughs> if he had any sticky stuff on him. Yeah, you laugh it off. Stuff that goes on in the sports world. I mean, every day, uh, you know, there's a someone some Olympic athlete wants to burn the American flag. I mean, what, what the hell's going on in this world? You know, there's, there's all right. kinds of things to talk about. So I think there is a place, and I fought forever. I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not just the sports. I'm not just irreplaceable. I'm not just replaceable as a, as a guy reading scores. You know, I'm, I do more than that. And that's what led to my doing the radio. There was a, a radio executive who said, you know, he can – he watched me on the air and he said, you know, he can, he can do more than just sports news. So this guy at a radio station hires me to do a, a news talk show, which I had never done. New, not sports talk show, a news talk show. You talk about fun and games. You think sports fans are nuts. Oh. Try talking to some of these political people. Oh, political fans. I mean, they're crazy. <laughs> on both, both sides of the Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. They're nuts. You know, working down south, it's uh it's pretty one-sided down there. And I grew up in the liberal Northeast. So right. trust me, like I, I've, I, I totally know where you're coming from with that. Like it's both sides. It's just, it's, it's even crazier than sports hundred percent. So you, you brought up radio, which is right. A perfect transition. Cause I was going to get into that. You're on the radio now, Monday through Friday, 6am, 10am, yeah. 710 WOR. I was reading that you had a pit stop back at WFN WFAN in the 90s. Uh, but that didn't last, as you yourself said, you got cold feet. What's I did. 
what's different for you with radio now compared to back okay. then? Well, I didn't have a job um, now, which made it more compelling to do a four-hour show, even if it wasn't the crack of dawn, and I'd only work nights. Now I'm working mornings. But right. the WFAN thing was just ill-planned by me. So I take full responsibility for that. And Don Imus on the air, who was at WFAN at the time, uh, killed me, as did Bob Raceman in the New York Daily News. They just jumped off. But I had signed to do a four-hour, I mean, that just sounds crazy. I'm doing this, the 5, 6, 11 o'clock, and I signed to do 10 to 2 uh, with Mike Lupica mm -hmm. of the Daily News, and we're going to do a four-hour sports show. And the minute I signed it, my wife, the true story, said, what the hell have you done? So I called the general manager at the time, and uh, I said, you know what, I really, I think I made a big mistake here, I'm sorry. And he said, well, we've already promoted it. And, and he seemed sympathetic, but the owner of the station didn't seem so sympathetic. So they said, here's what we'll do. Well, you can go on the air for, we'll put Lubick on the air for two hours. You go on the air for two hours. And uh, I actually enjoyed it, but it was just tough. I didn't realize, you know. A lot. You, you, yeah, you, that, think, right. you think radio's easy. It's just get out the, up there and talk. Well, after two hours on the radio, I was pretty exhausted. And then I had to go do a real job uh, and stay up till midnight. It just wasn't smart on my part. And I take full responsibility. So I got, I got cold feet. I tried to get out of it. And they let me out of it. Gee, I think I went maybe February to July or something. And they eventually let, said I could go. But I kind of liked the radio. And then so when this guy from WOR calls, and I said, well, wait a second. It's a sports show? He said, no, it's a news show. And two things had happened. Number one, he had seen me on the air in Boston way back when. He was a radio executive in the Boston area. And he saw me on Live at Five, where a lot of times we talked about stuff besides sports. Mm -hmm. And he, I give him a lot of credit. His name's Tom Cuddy. He's the program director of WOR Radio. And he, he said, you know, I think that this guy can talk about things besides sports. And so, I, I, listen, the whole politics thing, again, I was totally naive. Now, I'm like you. I'm from the Northeast. I, I figure, you know, if I had to pigeonhole myself, my views are more liberal than not especially when they come to guns and abortion and things like that. Uh, but the, this is a radio station. It's a very conservative radio station. This is the radio station that had the, the late uh, Rush Limbaugh on, still has Sean Hannity. So from 5 a.m. until 9 p.m., I'm the only voice on that radio station that leans left. And boy, the listeners just love me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I get email. I got one email this week that said, just retire. That's all. That was a whole. <laughs> That's good stuff. So you, like you mentioned, you know, you, you take full responsibility for getting cold feet. Yeah. This is not uncommon in this industry with people having to make big life decisions, have to move, have to um, take risks. What advice do you have for young, for younger broadcasters who like, like you can use myself for an example. Right. I, I decided I out of college, I went to Penn state and then I moved to Mississippi like three months after I graduated. Great and that's it. That's it. Yeah. But it's a, it's a big, it's a big life decision to be able sure. to pick up your whole life. You leave your friends and your family and you are, you're, you don't, you don't really know what you're getting into. You know, I didn't realize that I wasn't going to be working in the main newsroom. That wasn't part of the job description. I was working in the satellite as a satellite reporter covering all of Southern Mississippi. I thought I was gonna be with a full staff and everything. So sure. what advice do you have for a reporter or a broadcaster or, you know, honestly, anybody out there who is contemplating that big move, that big decision, and is 
maybe getting that cold feet? Well, try to do it. I mean, now I'm, I'm guessing you didn't have, you weren't married and didn't have kids at the time. Correct. 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 That was easier for you. I, yeah. I was uh, newly married when I went to Dayton, Ohio. I didn't have kids at the time. Um, <clears throat> but as you heard from the story before, I got a job because someone else <clears throat> had a life issue, a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you can do it, if you can make the move, I think the experience is just invaluable. Uh, the fact that uh, you worked in Mississippi just make puts you in a whole different category as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so first uh, piece of advice is, yeah, if you could do it, do it. Second piece of advice is, well, backing up, I think the internship route is just unbelievably invaluable. I mean, if you can score an internship in college, and usually they'll take you after your sophomore year, and you get to work at a television station, a lot of those interns, listen, Regis Philbin started as a page at NBC. So did Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN. I mean, mm -hmm. those internships, and I started as an intern in Dayton, Ohio. Those internships are just invaluable. Not only do you get to meet people, you get to network, you get experience, and usually it leads to another job. But if you can make that move, do it. And number two, don't pigeonhole yourself. In other words, if I had said back in 1970, I'm not going to Dayton because I'm waiting for a sports job, I might still be waiting. So it's like, a, you know, a parent who says they're going to groom their kid to be an offensive lineman. Well, that's absurd. I mean, you know, let them play some quarterback. Let them try wide receiver. Let them try, you know, the more things you could do. You've heard, how many football coaches have you heard that the last cut came down to somebody who could do a lot of different things, was a jack of all trades. And I think, it's, mm -hmm. I think it's the same with broadcasting. And also, you know, you have this internship or you're working in an area of the news department that you don't care for, um, but something always happens. You know, you, you, they, need, they need a body, they need a warm body. We need you to go interview this, this mayor. I'll do it, you know, so you go do it. I mean, I, here's another great story for you. I love these stories. Um, mm -hmm. When I was in Boston in the newsroom, all TV stations, and I think they still do, have to do a certain amount of public affairs because it looks good when they try to renew their license. So we had this guy that used to walk in the newsroom all the time named Vinny, and he'd be looking for a camera crew. And every time he walked in the newsroom, everyone would go hide because no one wanted to share their, you know, camera crews were precious resources. No one wanted to share the camera crew. Here's this guy, Vinny, he's gonna go, do an interview with somebody in some neighborhood about some big issue and that no one cared about, but he had to do it for public affairs. Uh, well, this guy, Vinny, uh, his name is Vinny DeBono, and he's the guy who came up with the idea of America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> he made a zillion dollars. So that, yeah. was, that was Vinny in a newsroom who we all tried to avoid. Yeah. So it, it just tells you, you never know where, th you know, he never, yeah. I can imagine, he went from being a public affairs director to a, a major producer of television. So Absolutely. Do whatever you can and, you know, try to maneuver and do whatever other kind of sundry jobs or anything you can just to, to get your foot in the door. That's the advice. All right. So we only, only got a couple more questions left. Um, and I want to talk about uh, more, more, a little bit more conflict. You, you know, you recently, you and Taj Schnitt, uh, notably did not get along off right. the, off the air and on the air and, and you know, on the air, right? You guys butted right. heads a little bit. How do you deal with a coworker or co-host that you don't get along with? Where like, I mean, I was, I was reading you guys would do your show and then you go off the air and you wouldn't talk and then you go back on the yeah. air and then it would just be, it would be like the show. So how did, yeah. how does that I, dynamic work? Wasn't ha I wasn't happy. <clears throat> I realized early on and I had this with, it was this strange story. 
there was a guy I would pass in the hall at NBC who worked in the control room. Mm-hmm. And every, everybody I walked past, hi, how you doing? Hi, how you doing? And he just would walk past. And I decided once not to say hello to see if he'd say hello to me, and he didn't. And for the next 12 years, we walked past each other, and nobody said hello. Uh, so anyway, after uh, a couple of weeks, of, I'd walk onto the studio and say, hey, how you doing? Todd, good morning, how you doing? And I tried, I said to myself, I'm going to do that same thing. I'm going to see if I don't say hello or good morning, will he say good morning? And he didn't. And from that time on, we never talked. I mean, I, I know, I'm, I, what can I tell you? It's not comfortable. Um, to me, it was, it's, see, I was in a beautiful position. Mm-hmm. I'd already retired from broadcasting. Right. And then I was kind of brought out of retirement. So my, my feeling was, well, what are they going to do, fire me? I mean, <laughs> I'd already been retired, you know? So yeah. uh, it's one of those things. Now I'm working with Michael Riedel, and we, uh, we you know, we get love each other, get along great. We yell and scream at each other on the air, and then we go to Oh, you guys, you guys have a fantastic – yeah, you guys have a fantastic dynamic. I was listening to the show the other day. I was actually yesterday. I was listening, and yeah. um, you mentioned so. <laughs> I don't really remember because it kind of cut off for a second. But you mentioned a story with Sue Simmons, where you were sitting at the desk and All she right. lowered <laughs> the chair on you. Oh yeah, so Sue was can, great can like you, that. Can you tell that story again? Because I thought that was hilarious. I forget how it came up. Oh, they were talking about. The, the, the New York one anger, New York yeah. One. Yes. It was a story about New York one, and they didn't like each other, and they would prank each other. And I said, well, I, you know, listen, sitting on the set, you know, Sue Simmons would sometimes hit the little button on, on your chair, and this is during commercial, and you'd go, <laughs> and, your cha- and I'll try to do it, your chair would go like like this, you know, and then, and then you'd be scrambling. The <laughs> but Sue was great that way. But it was all done in good fun. I mean, there was a famous story. I, I think it was true. There used to be Sue would sit with uh, Chuck Scarborough up front in the mm-hmm. old set, and Al Roker and I would sit in the back. Well, before me, Marv Albert would sit in the back. And I guess he's doing the sports, and he was so focused that uh, Sue just turned around, and no one could see it on camera except for Marv. And Sue flashes him <laughs> on the air. And, and he, uh, Marv went straight ahead in his, in his sports game. But Sue was great. I mean, Sue was just a lot of fun to work with. Uh, That's like an Anchorman. You remember that? You see Anchorman, sure. that scene where Veronica Corningstone starts and, like, they have, like, Brian Fantana and Champ are, like, like in their underwear, like, waving, like, the hat around and everything. <laughs> she just keeps on going. Some, well, there were some funny stories. That, I mean, not all of it's, you know, X-rated. I, we would walk off the set at the end of the news and Al and I would just walk off and that would be a studio wide shot. Well, yeah. there was a, a number four on the wall. And one day we walk off, it's on the air. And Al just takes the number four off the wall and keeps walking. <laughs> and nobody noticed. I mean, nobody, nobody said a word. That's amazing. That goofy stuff that would happen. Absolutely. Well, Len, thank you. You know, this is, this is all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really cool. Um, like I said, before the interview even started, we watched you for years. You were part of, you're part of our nightly, our nightly routine, making dinner. We would be watching you guys and uh, you fill us in on what was going on and now getting to interview you and I'm all growing up. This has been a very cool moment for me. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. And one day the Mets will win again. I don't know what day that is or what decade, but I promise you one day. I hope so. My, my Mets and my Jets. I'm hoping, hoping well, at least one that's of them. Like, I'm not promising nothing. <laughs> <with> that. <laughs> that's nice. very fair. That's very fair. All right, Len. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. 
All right, and that'll do it for us here at the ground floor for myself and producer Andrew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.